Well, since it uh, falls to me to uh, begin this series on Abraham, I thought, oh, there's a ladybird on the desk. Go away. Um, I, thought, I thought we'd start by having a look at uh, Acts, the book of Acts. So can you turn with me to Acts 15, which is on page 1110. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a big bus stop in this church because of the success of our mission? We had so many people pouring through the doors that we didn't know where to put them and we didn't know which seat to put them in. And some of them were sitting on the yellow cards. Because that's the sort of thing that is happening here in Acts 15. The mission of Paul and Barnabas in the Antioch area had been so successful that there were Gentiles being saved left, right and centre. Uh, and this was fine, everybody was very excited until, uh, uh, as you see in verse 1 of chapter 15, some men came from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. The debate uh, got a bit out of hand, and in the end they called a council of the church, um, and they, uh, they, re- they met together with Peter, and James and some of the other apostles, and again, uh, in verse 5, some of the party of the Pharisees came and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So they're having this big debate about who should be allowed in the church, or, or not so much who should be allowed in the church, but under what terms should they have to be circumcised according to the law that Moses had given. Well, Paul takes up this argument Uh, in Galatians chapter 3. He says, essentially, forget about Moses and the law. And he says, consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So there's going to be a bit of moving around the Bible this morning, but that's what we're going to do. We're going to consider Abraham today, and obviously over the next few weeks in this series as well. But when we get to chapter 12 of Genesis, and we can move there now, it's on page 13, what we have, according to Paul, is nothing less than the gospel in advance. So let's remind ourselves, first of all, why we need that gospel. Well, here's something very important about Genesis chapter 12 that you should learn and inwardly digest. Are you ready? Here it is. Chapter 12 comes after chapter 11. Now, why is that important? Because in chapter 11, there is no grace, no hope, no salvation. And the stage is set for what the theologian Chris Wright calls an escalating crescendo of human sin. So there are four parts to this sermon. A sorry story, an unpromising answer, a great conclusion, and then we end with a great commission. So let's begin with a sorry story in chapters uh, 3 to 11, which has to be the starting point, I think, for any series on the life of Abraham. 
So in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates the world and humanity. God gives Adam a helper called Eve, and marriage is created. And together, humanity is told to be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the birds and the animals and all living creatures. And it's not a difficult instruction, but uh, human beings, what they are, mess it up anyway. They rebel against their creator, they distrust his goodness, they disobey his authority, and disregard the boundaries that God had set in place for their, around their freedom in this world. And after all that, all relationships in creation are fractured. Human beings hide from God in guilt and shame. Men and women can't look at each other without embarrassment. Being fruitful becomes hard work, either in the fields or it becomes painful in childbirth. And sin becomes the norm even as the people go about the inevitable business of scratching a living and increasing in number. But this sorry story is also set alongside what, I, what Wright calls repeated marks of God's grace. So going back again in Genesis, the serpent's head will be crushed. Adam and Eve, after being found naked, are clothed by God. Cain is protected by God. Noah and his family are saved. Life goes on. Creation is preserved under this covenant promise that God made to Noah. Humanity is very seriously flawed, but by God's grace, <coughs> excuse me, they continue to stumble on in their task of filling this earth and subduing it. And the institutions that God's put in place, like marriage and nationhood, well, none, that all helps and gives some kind of stability. Chapter 10 is almost positive. Noah's sons are spread out. You see that in verse 30. There were clans, there were languages, there were territories and nations. And none of this was bad. But after that comes chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel. And do you remember the gist of that story? Well, the spreading out around the world, across the world, had stopped. Instead, the people decided to get together in the plain of Shinar. And verse 4, they decided to build a big city with a tower that reaches the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth, they say. So do you see what's happening? Their decision is to build a city and a tower. It seems to combine an arrogance in wanting to make their own way in life and make a name for themselves, and at the same time an insecurity in wanting to settle in one, one place rather than to spread out over the world as God had intended. So the picture is of a people determined to reach to the heavens whilst resisting God's will here on earth. And how does God respond? We're not, in chapter 11, with any hint of grace. You see, he practically laughs at their tower. From below, it might look like it might reach to the heavens, but from above, where God is, he has to come down to even catch a glimpse of their puny efforts. So God stops them building the tower, by sowing confusion among them, and forces them to do what they should have done in the first place, which is to scatter around the world. But this time, they're doing it in division, in confusion, and under duress. So it's all a tragically mixed picture. On the one hand, men can find fulfillment in subduing the earth, but they can only do it with sweat and frustration. Their technology can make things which are beautiful and useful, but they can also make weapons of violence and death. 
Both men and women can enjoy sexual intimacy and the joy of childbirth, but that's combined with lust and dominance and pain. Does this story ring any bells with us? Well, yes, we can, we can see it in the created universe around us. We can see it groaning under the weight of excessive population and the pollutants that we pumped into the atmosphere. We see it on a global level in the selfishness of rulers and strife between nations. But don't we also see it on an individual level? Isn't our natural tendency towards sin? Don't you find yourself this strange mixture of arrogance of the people of Babel, I'm going to do it my way, and insecurity, living in fear of the world around us? Do you live in a constant search for purpose? Are you always busy, active, pressing on, but unendingly confused about where you're going? So by the end of chapter 11, it looks like God's patience had ran out. Had God rejected the people forever was the question on their hearts. It's the sorry story that sets the background to the rest of the Bible. But it's also the sorry story that sets the background to the way that many of us live our lives today. Modern technology, science and entertainment may serve to dull (coughs) the pain, but the judgment, confusion and consequences of Babel still remain. So where does God's mission go from here? Well, here we get to chapter 12 which begins with an unpromising answer to that question. See, God chose to take an elderly, childless couple called Abram and Sarai. And when they, were first, uh, when they first heard God's call, they were living in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, in what we now call southern Iraq. Not far, from, in fact, from where the Tower of Babel would have been. It was a large urban centre, a place of high culture, but it was also known as a place of moon worship. And Abraham's family were not, influ- uh, not uninfluenced by that. In Joshua 24, chapter, uh, chapter 24, verse 2, Joshua says, Long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. So there's Abraham's family, Abraham's family, living amongst these pagan, moon-worshipping people. And even Abraham's father was involved in that worship. You couldn't think of a more unpromising answer to the confusion of the world. And yet the significance of what God did in choosing Abraham cannot be overestimated. So let's look at these promises in more detail. So verse 1. The Lord had said to Abraham, (coughs) sorry, Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In the original language, this little speech falls into two halves, each half beginning with an imperative. So the first half begins, go, leave your country. The second half begins a little bit further down, where the NIV unhelpfully says, and you will be a blessing. In the original, that's an imperative, go and and be a blessing. So the first half is go, leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. 
Do you see how much this promise required Abraham, Abraham's obedience? He had to get up and leave and separate himself from everything that could hold him back. First his country and the pagan worship that surrounded him. And then he had to leave his family, his people. So he left Ur and Chaldeans and he went only with his wife, his father Terah, and his nephew Lot, and they settled in a city called Haran. But then his father died, and so Abraham and Sarah, Sarai and Lot moved further southwest into the land of Canaan. And in chapter 13, we'll see how uh, Lot was also separated from them a little bit further on, but we'll see more of that next week. So he gave up his country and his family to obey God. He had to cut all the ties that he had with his previous life, Babel, pagan gods, moon worship, none of that was going to be part of God's solution. Abraham was called to separate himself from all of these. And only having done that does God promise that Abraham himself will be blessed. And it's worth just taking a moment now to notice the echoes and the contrasts that we have here with Babel. So firstly, notice that the people of Babel wanted to make a great city for themselves where they could live with their families. But they ended up being scattered across the earth. Secondly, the people of Babel wanted to make a name for themselves, but they ended up with a name which basically means confusion. In contrast, Abraham had to give up his country, but in return, God promised him a land of his own. And Abraham had to give up his family, but in return, he was promised that his offspring would become a great nation. And Abraham even had to give up the name of his father's household, but in return, he would become known as the father of the nations. But first, before that, Abraham had to go. He had to go to the land that God would show him. You see, he didn't even know where he was going. He really had to trust God. So was it worth it? Were any of these promises obviously fulfilled during Abraham's lifetime? Was he blessed? Well, if you look down at verse 5, you see that before leaving Haran, they'd already accumulated possessions and people. And at the end of his life, Abraham's servant reports that the Lord has blessed my master abundantly, and he has become wealthy. He's given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, manservants and maidservants and camels and donkeys. But in terms of the land, Abraham never settled there. Look at verse 6. Abraham travelled through the land, as far as the site of the great tree at Moe, at Shechem. But he didn't settle anywhere, for the simple fact that the land was already occupied by the Canaanites. And despite the reassurance from the Lord that this was indeed the land that he would give to Abraham's offspring in verse 7, he still couldn't settle. He simply built an altar, he worshipped God, and then he moved on again. They went further south, and they pitched their tent again in the hills between Bethel and Ai, Note they couldn't stay in the towns or the villages because they were, they were immigrants. They were barely tolerated by the locals, so they kept to the edges of the towns. Once again, Abraham builds an altar to the Lord, and he moves on. This time they go even further south, towards the Negev Desert, southwest of the Dead Sea. And that's when disaster strikes, famine hits the land, and they have to leave the land of promise and head into Egypt. So Abraham had travelled the length of the land, but he'd never occupied a single part of it, or lived in anything more substantial than a tent. Even though he died a wealthy man, the only part of the land that he'd been promised that he could call his own was a small cave that he had bought from the Hittites as a burial place for his wife Sarah. 
and what is the great nation of the seed taken from his seed? Well, as we shall see over the coming weeks, there were botched attempts to create offspring by bypassing his wife, Sarai, who was barren. But in terms of a nation as numerous as the stars in the sky, all he had to show for it was one legitimate son, Isaac. It was hardly a great nation. So it's all a pretty unpromising start then, isn't it? And yet we haven't even got to the second half of the promise in verses 1 to 3 yet. Well, in the NOA, as I said, it's rather misleadingly written as, and you will be a blessing. But that's in the center of these phrases. It's, it's pulled out by the emphasis of being in the, in the center of, of Hebrew writing. But it's also pulled out because it's an imperative. It says, and be a blessing. Abraham is told to go and be a blessing. And if you do that, God says, I will bless those who bless you. Whereas whoever curses you, I will curse. But all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the idea here was that God would bless this old man, Abraham, and his offspring or seed, and then Abraham would go and he would bless the world, the whole world. And again, the idea was a good one. Just think in contrast, again, to Babel in chapter 11, which ended with global confusion. Here, God promises global blessing the floodgates of his grace would be reopened. But did that bit come true? Well, there were some immediate beneficiaries. So in chapter 14 of Genesis, the king of Sodom got some of his people and his money back after a battle. But that wasn't much good because in chapter 9, they were all destroyed anyway. In chapter 19, they were all destroyed anyway. And then the curse on Abimelech and his house, household in chapter 20 was reversed. But again, that had been caused by Abraham and his actions in the first place. Moving on, you could say that Joseph made the household of Potiphar uh, much richer. Genesis 39, verse 5 says, The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. And later on, uh, Joseph, a second in command to Pharaoh, uh, could be said to have saved many Egyptian families from starvation during another famine. But really you have to look quite long and hard to try and find out how Abraham's immediate offspring were a great blessing to the nations. So it's no wonder, I suppose, that the book of Genesis is often described as the book of partially fulfilled promises. It was all a rather unpromising start to God's big answer to the confusion and unhappiness of our world. But Abraham's faith never died. Abraham's na- faith never died. And nor did Israel's. So in Isaiah chapter 19, Isaiah writes, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Jeremiah 4, and verse 2, says something similar. As surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will be blessed by him, and in him they will glory. Zechariah chapter 8, and verse 13, says, As you have been an object of cursing among the nations, O Judah and O Israel, so will I save you, and you will be a blessing. Do not be afraid, but let your heart your hands be strong. And Psalm 72 and verse 17 says, it looks forward to an ideal king in the line of David, 
And it says, may his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. All nations will be blessed through him, and they will call him blessed. So they had to wait, but they didn't lose faith. Which leads us back again to Acts verse 15. Go back to page 1110. As we said there, the great dispute was around on what terms would people be allowed to enter the Christian church? Would they only be allowed to enter under the terms of Moses and the law? That's clearly what the circumcisers thought in verse 5. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. But in verse 7, look down to that. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. He said, brothers, you know that at some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. So were these blessings the fruit of Moses and the law? That's what the circumcisers were arguing. No, says Peter, they were purified in their hearts by faith. And in verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. Everybody was getting just so excited about how the Gentiles were coming to Christ. And Paul elaborates, in, as we saw in, in Galatians uh, chapter 3, Verse 6 to 9, let's have a look at that, uh, 1,169, sorry, 1,169. So Galatians chapter 3. And verse 6, Paul says in effect, forget Moses, consider Abraham. He believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. What he means there is that even Abraham was made right with God, or purified, if you like, by his act of believing or by faith. And Paul continues, Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So what made the difference? Why had the promises only been partially fulfilled in the Old Testament period? Why was the law of Moses always ultimately ineffective? Well, Paul's answer is breathtaking. In effect, he says that everybody had been looking in the wrong place. So in Galatians 3 and verse 16, he says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. Which means that now, in verse 26, there is neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, of course, the Israelites did finally get their land in the book of Joshua, and they developed their great nation through the book of Judges and Kings and so on. But according to the New Testament, 
Such boundaries are now irrelevant. The great nation, the seed of Abraham, is now all of those who have put their faith in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs, according to the promise. And our inheritance is not a small country at the eastern end of the Mediterranean, because in Romans chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says, it was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. So do you see that by faith we are heirs of the whole world. Our inheritance is the whole world. So what does that mean for us? Well, firstly, it reminds us of God's grace. God chose Abraham and called him from his country and his family, not because of his works or good deeds. There's no mention of that anywhere in either chapter 11 or or chapter 12. But it was because of God's grace. And like Abraham, we are chosen by God, not because of who we are or how good we are or the potential we show, but because God loves us how we are. God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. But to receive our promises, we also have to leave behind the things that hinder us. And we have to say sorry to God. Not sort of sorry, as Alan was saying earlier on, but really sorry. And the choosing of Abraham was, in effect, the gospel of grace in advance. But it also leaves us with something to do, a great commission. Like Abraham, we must go and be a blessing to the nations. We must go and be a blessing. There's no better definition of mission than that, really, than to go and be a blessing. It's no accident that Matthew's gospel begins with these words, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew's Gospel ends with the words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see, we, Abraham's seed, Abraham's offspring, Abraham's children, sat here in this church today, We are not passive bystanders to this story of Abraham and Sarah. We need to be there with them inside their tents. We need to be prepared to move wherever the Spirit of God takes us. We are numbered among their offspring. We have a land to occupy, an inheritance to gain, a world to redeem, and there are many, many disciples out there to win. We are called to complete that promise of Abraham which was made to Abraham. We must go and be a blessing. And when we've done that, when we've gone, when we've blessed the world through our lives and through our actions, at the end of it all, we have an even better promise. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1 says this, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by hands. And meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. And that's the promise that we have. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the call Uh, that you made to Abraham 
to go and be a blessing to the nations. And we thank you, that may, you the, for the promises that you made to him if he did that. Lord, I pray that we would take upon us that very call and that we also would go and be a blessing to the people around us, to our friends and our family, to the people in this city and in this nation and in nations around the world. In the name of Christ, amen.